financial advisors help their clients, but not for the reasons that clients think. You know, again, clients think, oh, I hired this financial advisor because they have a crystal ball and sort of the keys to the asset management kingdom. Well, that's not by and large the case. Um, What they do, though, is that people who work with financial advisors tend to outperform those who don't by two to three percent a year because the advisor keeps them from being their own worst enemy and making foolish mistakes. Does talking about your money make you cringe? Are you tired of fighting about finances? Do you want to stop sabotaging your financial happiness? Then you are in the right place. Welcome to Breaking Money Silence, a podcast series aimed at helping all of us talk more openly about money. Your host, Kathleen Burns Kingsbury, is a wealth psychology expert who is doing what she does best, speaking about taboo topics. International speaker, author, and founder of KBK Wealth Connection, Kathleen understands money and our relationship with it. Over the past decade, she has empowered thousands of people to break money silence at home and at work. Now, here is Kathleen. It is very exciting to have Dr. Daniel Crosby on the Breaking Money Silence podcast today with me. He is a psychologist, behavioral finance expert, and author of several books, including his first book, which was a New York Times bestseller, Personal Benchmark, Integrating Behavioral Finance and Investment Management. Since then, he's published a few other books with a lot more accolades, and I know uh, most recently has a new book out called The Behavioral Investor. So today, um, not surprising given the titles of those books, he's going to talk about a myth as it relates to the stock market. Um, but before we get into that myth, I just want to say that uh, I had the honor of serving on a panel um, with Daniel last year on behavioral finance. And um, while we only connected for a short instance, it was clear that we had a lot in common and we both believed in breaking money silence. So uh, welcome. I'm really glad you were able to join us today. Yeah, it's my pleasure. And I have to just say that you were uh, a joy on that panel. Uh, I hate panels. I find them almost universally boring. And the, <laughs> the, pa- <laughs> the panel that you were on was not boring because we had a couple of characters on the panel. And uh, you uh, you handled yourself very, very well in the face of, I thought, uh, some people who could have been a little bit tough. So you did a great job, and it was it was not a boring panel. Thank you. Uh, more on that later, but I appreciate uh, the compliment. Uh, so let's delve right into uh, your myth. Today you decided to bring the money myth, stock selection is the best indicator of wealth creation. Tell um, the listeners a little bit, Daniel, as to why you picked that myth, like what the motivation was there. So it's interesting, you know, professionally, I'm a clinical psychologist by education. So I'm a shrink, like a lay on the couch and tell me about your mom shrink. And so, you know, I came into the world of finance about a decade ago as very much an outsider. And so from the outside looking in, I embarked on this study of market psychology with a belief that, hey, if you could be, you know, uh, Warren Buffett, if you could be Stanley Druckenmiller, if you could be you know, these folks who generate these eye-popping returns, that's the secret to getting wealthy is just putting up a big number year after year. Um, But I'm here to tell you that that's not the case and that the best predictor of wealth creation over the long term is, in fact, investor behavior. 
And it's also the, the hardest piece of that puzzle. I think a lot of what these folks do is there's, there's not a lot of secret to it, uh, but their genius lies in their ability to, to stick with it and have the sort of mental discipline that leads them to, to be able to create those returns, not some secret sauce. It's interesting because when you turn on the media and you listen to, you know, people, what people are saying uh, on TV or you read something, you often think, oh, somebody has it figured out. And if I could just figure out who that person is, then I could follow them and do exactly what they'd do and and I'll be rich, too. But what you're saying is that's not the case. Yeah. So my favorite study that speaks to this, and it's it's just insane. Like, you won't believe these numbers when you hear them. So if you let's say that we had godlike ability to to discern which asset managers were going to outperform um, most handily over a 10-year period, right? Like, we think this would give us, um, you know, we'd, we'd be all set. But let's say you could, you could have guessed the fund that was going to outperform from 2000 to 2010. It returned, it was a focused equity fund that returned 18.5% per year, so you're doubling your money about every three years, three, three and a half years, just incredible returns. So the fund gets 18.5% a year. I want you to guess what the average investor in the fund got. Do you have a guess? I'm going to go 8%. Negative 11%. <laughs> oh, wow. Because what happened, and you know, you and I know that in a focused fund like this, there's a lot of volatility because it's not all that well diversified. And so what happened was the fund had great ups and great downs, even though the ups outweighed the downs over the long term. So what would happen is the fund would go up 100%. The fund would run up dramatically. It would be in the news. People would pile their money in. And then the fund would do what all funds do and what the market itself does, which is it would mean revert. It would go down for a while. Everyone would go, ah, we made a mistake. That was dumb, you know, bad move. And they would jump out. Then the fund would do well again. Everyone would pile back in. So on a time-weighted average, the time-weighted average was, you know, 18.5%. The dollar-weighted average was negative, and it's just incredible to understand that your ability to profit from even a really talented asset manager, of which there are not a ton, um, even if you could figure out who's doing that well, you've still got to be able to take the ride. And, you know, Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway has been down 50% numerous times. And so for him to have accumulated the kind of wealth he has, he's had to take a 50% haircut again and again and again. And so it's really about investor behavior. So why do you think it is that we, I feel like we learn this lesson. Well, we don't learn the lesson. We do this over and over again, right? We do exactly what you're talking about in that we um, sell when it's low, we buy when it's high, and we continue to make that mistake as an investor. So what can we do about it? Well, you know, the best thing and the simplest thing you can do is to just automate your process, right? And for most people, that's as simple as, you know, sweeping money out of your account every month or every two weeks and into an investing account and just kind of leaving it alone. You know, in in The Laws of Wealth, my, my second book, I looked at over 200 studies on discretionary decision making. So like, you know, free will effectively, 
versus rules-based decision-making and found that 94% of the time, the rules beat the discretion. And the cool thing is the rules beat the discretion and they save you the headache, right? So not only, you know, not only do you do much better on average, you, you just don't worry about it. And so for the average person, you just need to automate your saving, you need to automate your investing, and then go about more meaningful and more interesting pursuits than the kind of things that you and I have to think about all day. <laughs> so why do you think the industry for so long has kind of perpetuated this myth that somehow stock selection is the best indicator of, of wealth or the best way to create wealth? Well, it's, it's appealing, right? You know, when I was, uh, when I was a psychologist... You know, one of the first, uh, one of the when I was a clinical psychologist, I guess one of the first things I would always do was assess people's um, nutrition, nutritional regimens, their their exercise habits, their you know relationships, and I felt like that was very key to mental health. You know, being active, eating the right things, not abusing substances, things like that. And nobody wants that. Like nobody wants to hear, you know, look, you should go on a walk every day and distance yourself from your boyfriend who's, you know, upsetting you. <laughs> what they want is a, a pill. And I think that for a very long time, um, returns were, were the pill that the financial services industry sold to investors because it's, it's nice to think, well, if I could just discover, you know, the next Buffett, I'd be on my way. It's a much harder ask to say, hey, you know, Mrs. Investor, you need to stay in your seat. You need to do this difficult thing. You need to deal with volatility. You need to manage your behavior. It's a much bigger ask than just saying, look, we've got this magic wand for you. So in both cases, um, it's a harder sell, but it's also more meaningful. It's truer and it's more lasting. So it sounds like the industry might like to sell that pill, but also consumers might like to take that pill. So what do you do in either your day-to-day life or your work with advisors to help us change that and really look at investor behavior and, and look at what the facts are as opposed to the money myth? Well, what, what I try and do is I try and confront this on, on a couple of, uh, couple of fronts, right? I think, first of all, we need education. And I think education is um, necessary but not sufficient. And so that's a, that's a starting point. You need to educate investors. The average American is so woefully undereducated uh, when it comes, comes to their finances. So just getting people in a place where they know enough to make wise decisions. The second thing is I, I'm in my role as chief behavioral officer at Brinker Capital. I work directly with advisors to help them be better coaches for their clients, because one thing we find again and again, uh, consistent with my myth, is that financial advisors help their clients, but not for the reasons that clients think. You know, again, clients think, oh, I hired this financial advisor because they have a crystal ball and sort of the keys to the asset management kingdom. Well, that's not by and large the case. Um, what they do, though, is that people who work with financial advisors tend to outperform those who don't by 2 to 3% a year because the advisor keeps them from being their own worst enemy and making foolish mistakes. And then the, the final thing, which is sort of my current, uh, the, the thrust of my current work, is I'm trying to provide just-in-time, uh, just-in-time advice for investors and advisors, which is to say... Um, you know, if we liken this, 
we liken this to um, diet and exercise. It's early in the year, so everyone, you know, the gyms are very busy right now. So if you liken this to diet and exercise, you know, uh, one piece of the puzzle is, is having the nutrition labels on the side of the food so you know what you're getting, you know. A second piece is maybe working with a personal assistant, uh, excuse me, a, a personal fitness uh, assistant, personal fitness coach. And then a third step would be if someone could kind of slap the donut out of your hand right <laughs> as you're about to eat it. <laughs> and so that's, that's sort of the piece that I'm working on now is, you know, with the benefit of technology, we can do things like when someone's going to hit sell or, you know, to make a to make a buy or sell decision, we can say in real time, like, eh, like, you know, hey, are you sure? You know, here's the tax consequences of that. This isn't consistent with your plan. Are you sure you want to do that? So I think, you know, this combination of education, advice, and just-in-time intervention, is, I think it takes all three levels uh, for us to do something as difficult as, as stay the course in volatile markets. So, you know, if we do the just-in-time or we do the three different approaches that you talked about, which make perfect sense to me, but if we include the just-in-time, right, the knocking the metaphorical donut out of your hand, and we do that enough times, do you think people will get reprogrammed or do you think we'll always be irrational uh, about money and investments? I, I don't. I don't. This is sad to say. I don't think we'll get reprogrammed, you know, because I, I travel a lot. Um, and I know you do as well. And so uh, when I'm walking through an airport and I smell Cinnabon, you know, and I've had a long week of client meetings and I'm tired and I'm hungry and, you know, I can go get a salad or a Cinnabon, um, you know, I go get the Cinnabon not because I think it's good for me or I lack any, you know, lack any awareness of its nutritional contents. It's just I just don't care. Like, in, you know, in a moment of weakness, I just don't care. And so I think that just in time has a has a strong uh, is a strong sort of third line of defense. But in terms of the other two, I just don't think we're we're wired to do these things well. And so um, I don't know that that we will ever change. And I don't know that there's enough books that can be written or counsel that can be given to make us want to do something that's so contrary to our human nature as, as investing, because there's, there's nothing about saving money and investing money that comes easy or naturally to, to humankind. Hmm. Yeah. So, you know, that, that seems pessimistic, but it also seems uh, based in reality. If you look back over time, we've been having the same issues around money investing for decades, uh, if not longer centuries, right? Yeah, you know, I um, I think, I mean, maybe it's pessimistic, or hopefully it's just realistic, because I think when you're honest with yourself about your own failings and, and your own propensities, it's only then that you're able to surround yourself with the right support systems and put, you know, put yourself in the right situation. You know, you don't, you don't walk by the Cinnabon, you don't turn on CNBC, you don't read the, you know, the article that says, you know, about the analyst estimate of Apple next quarter, you know, <laughs> whatever it is that you're avoiding or, you know, you, you can put yourself in situations that are conducive to good decision making and avoid those that aren't. So I think that sort of an awareness of how the mind and body uh, and, and psyche work with respect to money are a, are a necessary first step to know how to arm yourself.
Well, and I also think, Daniel, you know, the more you talk, the more I realize that our two backgrounds are, you know, so similar. And what I'm thinking about in terms of the work I used to do in the body image and eating disorder field is the idea of a behavioral chain and that there's certain behaviors that lead you to either under overeat or whatever your, um, you know, symptom might be and that it's about breaking the chain. And it sounds like with Mm -hmm. technology, you're really looking at how do we help people break the chain? How do advisors help? But in the just-in-time, how in that moment do we break that chain and allow people the potential to make a different decision and a healthier decision around their money? Yeah, absolutely. Nice. So um, what are you finding uh, in terms of advisors? And, and be are they receptive to this kind of information? Is it something that they are willing to kind of look at and, and want to become coaches? Or is there any resistance in the field to, to doing something that's different and not just offering that uh, metaphorical pill? I find very little resistance to it. I find a great deal of enthusiasm and very little resistance. I do find a dearth of application, though. Like, I think I think most advisors, you know, they'll hear me or, you know, someone like myself or you give a talk and they'll go, yes, you know, yes, absolutely. I'm bought in. I, I love this. And it sort of comes down to what next? Because it's harder to sell um, behavioral coaching and hand-holding and emotion management than it is to sell, um, you know, panaceas and cure-all pills. And so I think there's a lot of enthusiasm, and, and then folks like you and I have a responsibility to develop tools that are equal to that enthusiasm. So for the advisors, the enthusiasm and then giving them the tools, but what can somebody who's a, a you know, a consumer or client uh, who's listening in right now, is there anything that they can do differently? Um, you know, obviously checking out some of your books and, and gaining that insight, and that education. Any ideas what somebody could do that's listening in that could help them start to make this change for themselves? Yeah, I think the first thing that they need to do is educate themselves, like you said. I mean, I think if you look... Um, I, you know, of course, would recommend my book and your book. Um, but I think, you know, that if you look online, there's a broad consensus around the best, you know, five or 10 books for, for investors who are just getting started. So spend the time with those five or 10 books. I, rec- I recommend to everyone um, that they go get an advisor. I just don't feel like there's any substitute for this. I will say, though, that not all advisors are created equal. And there are some really excellent ones. That's most of them. But there are some that are not great and operate from conflicts of interest and don't act in the best interest of their clients. So my, my wife, who does not work in our industry, uh, read my book, The Laws of Wealth. And I, you know, I was interested to hear what part she found most useful. And there's one page in there where I talk about you know, how to choose a financial advisor. And she said that, that one page is, you know, was the most useful thing to me because, you know, if I got hit by a truck tomorrow, I think that's the the page that she would go look at when she was trying to figure out um, who should manage our money. So, yeah, that would be, you know, educate yourself and then go find some help, but find the right kind of help and do a little do a little work around what the right advisor looks like. And at a high level, what are some of the things people should be looking at? Well, they should look at uh, experience. They should look at designations like a CFP or other designations, an MBA or a CFP or advanced designations. Um, They should uh, look for someone who talks candidly about their fee structure. You know, people, I think, 
a minority of people, research I've seen shows that a minority of people know how their advisor gets paid or what they get paid, which is shocking to me. Um, So ask that person, you know, how do you get paid? And if they're cagey about that, run far away. Exactly. (laughs) Uh, And then um, the other thing I would look for is also just connection. You know, there's research in the psych literature that the best predictor of whether or not someone gets better is just the, the level of rapport that they have with, with their therapist. And I think that that generalizes to our world to say, look, you're, you're probably not going to receive the right kind of coaching or take the advice of someone you just don't click with. So I think it's an underappreciated uh, part of looking for an advisor to say, hey, you know, do I like this person? So I think those are a couple of places to start. I, I have 10 things listed in the book, and I can only remember those four off the top of my head. <laughs> that's okay. It was a book ago, and yeah. um, that's something that certain uh, certainly people who are listening can uh, check out the book, The Laws of Wealth, uh, as well as the most recent one, The Behavioral Investor. And I think those are good tips. I think with the transparency of fees, what's really interesting is sometimes the fee structure in this industry is so convoluted, depending on who you're seeing, that sometimes it can be even hard for the advisor to be able to explain it to you. And I often think if the advisor can't explain it to you, um, not even that they're being cagey, that it's so confusing, um, that it may be, you know, may not be the model for you. Um, and I right. also absolutely agree with the fit and connection. And and one of the things I just like to add is I have found that the fit and connection is important, and that may change over time given what's going on in your life. I mean, ideally, you have the same advisor your entire life. Um, and I know some uh, professionals out there might not like what I say this, but if for some reason somebody really helped you during a period of your life and then it feels like maybe I have different needs, my wealth has grown, my life situation has changed, I think it's okay to take care of yourself and and find uh, a professional that's going to maybe grow with you. And and I know for a lot of the clients that I've talked to and and a lot of men and women, they feel really guilty if they're going to change their advisor. I'm like, do you feel guilty if you go to a different um, place to get your oil changed? It's I, I understand there's a higher level of a connection, but it's really about taking care of yourself. Yeah, I couldn't couldn't agree more. So what is one tip you'd like to leave our listeners with, And knowing that, you know, it's a mix of financial advisors as well as consumers that listen to Breaking Money Silence? So this is a, this is a tough one. So the, the first, the first, I've given three TEDx talks and the, everyone, everyone has received fewer views than the one previous. So I'm just getting worse and worse at giving <laughs> TED talks. Not necessarily. <laughs> so my first, my first and most popular um, TEDx talk was called You're Not That Great. And it was all about um, the power of realizing <laughs> your own level of personal mediocrity and basically just owning that you're subject to the same foibles and biases and mistakes as the next person. And I think that this is especially um, good when it comes to investing. So we have a tendency um, to think that we're better than the next person or that, you know, bad things happen to other people, but not to us or other people will make boneheaded moves in the market, but we're going to buy low and sell high. And I think one of the hallmarks of a great investor and someone who's going to become this millionaire next door who's able to, to build wealth over time uh, is to read books about what investors do and not 
point to other people, but to point at themselves and go, you know, yeah, that's me. You know, I, I do these things too. One of the dangers of behavioral finance, this field that I work in, is that people read these books and go, wow, you know, aren't people stupid and don't people make silly mistakes? Uh, never realizing that they're a person too and that they're subject to all those same things. So one tip I'd give is to recognize your own uh, susceptibility to all the bad things that anyone else does uh, and to set guardrails in place to prevent them from happening. I love that because it's really accepting our humanness and that it's okay that we make mistakes and surrounding ourselves with support and, um, you know, that that's the way we're going to be able to do the best in life in general. And then I think also certainly around our money. So thank you so much for hanging out and chatting with me today and, um, you know, chatting with our listeners about your work. It's really fascinating. And I um, can't wait to see what you come up with next. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for listening to Breaking Money Silence, hosted by Kathleen Burns Kingsbury, a wealth psychology expert, author, and founder of KBK Wealth Connection. If you like what you heard today, be sure to subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast app and leave a review. Also, share this episode with your friends and family. It is a great way to get the conversation started. For more money talk tips and information, or to hire Kathleen to speak at your next event, go to www.breakingmoneysilence.com.